You're listening to the Sunday podcast from LifePoint Church in Santan Valley, Arizona. We hope you're encouraged by today's message. For more information, visit us online at lifepointaz.com. I like how they made the women's event sound like a UFC match. So ladies, if you were looking to get a little aggression out, it sounds like spoons is your game. I did, although in a game of spoons at a couple's house here named Matt Feeney and Tracy Feeney, I did put someone's head through a wall while going through the spoons. So it is a good time, but just be careful. And, it, and he enjoyed it. He enjoyed having his head in the wall. I asked him afterwards. Hey, we are in, back in the book of John. We took a couple of months off, and we are in John chapter 10. So go ahead and open up your Bibles. I'll wait. Yes, I'm purposely making this awkward. Go ahead. This is, this is an interesting section of Scripture because in this section of Scripture, I'm going to talk about and say some things that are sort of head scratchers and make you go, there's no way it actually says that in the Bible. And so I encourage you on a section of Scripture like this to have your own Bible in front of you, and then we will talk about what Jesus was attempting to get across uh, as he's speaking to this group of rabbis and Pharisees and uh, religious leaders of the Judaistic religion, okay? So we're going to be in John chapter 10, and we're going to be starting in verse 30, and I'll explain uh, after we read this section what was going on in the previous verses so we get a full picture of what Jesus is doing. John 10, 30 says, I and the Father are one. Again, the Jews picked up stones to stone him. Who appreciates scripture? And I mean not just for its you know, historical value, but the fact that it's hilarious, okay? It says, again, they picked up stones, which means this group of well-respective, educated men had already picked up stones and been like, oh, boy, we're going to get this guy. He starts talking to them, and so they're like, well, all right, I'll give him a second. They put their stone down, and then he says, I and the Father in one. That's it. I'm getting my stone again. That's, that's blasphemy. Like, you just... Have fun with it when you read it. I love it. Again, they went to pick up stones to stone him. And Jesus said to them, I've shown you many great miracles from the Father. For which one do you stone me? We're not stoning you for any of these, uh, they replied, but for blasphemy, because you, a mere man, you claim to be God. Jesus answered them, is it not written in your law? I have said you are God's. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came and the scripture cannot be broken, what about the one whom the Father set apart at his very own and sent into the world? Why then do you accuse me of blasphemy because I said I am God's son? Do not believe me unless I do what my Father does. But if I do it, even though you don't believe me, believe the miracles that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I in the Father. Again, they tried to seize him, but he escaped their grasp. Then Jesus went back across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing in the early days. Here he stayed and many people came to him. They said, though John never performed a miraculous sign, all that John said about this man was true. And in that place... Many believed in Jesus. Would you bow your heads with me? Father, as we walk through this, I pray for wisdom and knowledge. I pray that we would have understanding of what you were trying to get across. 
I pray that, Lord, we would understand Scripture and the value and importance of it for us today. In Jesus' name, amen. So right smack dab in the middle of this fight, in the middle of this heated exchange, obviously it's more than just an exchange. These men are ready to kill Jesus by stoning him. He is going to do what's called an exegesis, which is he's going to break down Scripture for them. They're getting ready to stone him, and he's like, allow me to break down your scriptures for you so you can understand that what I'm saying is not blasphemous. In fact, your own law says, are they not gods? And by the way, if you look in your scripture, it's what? Lowercase g, right? Lowercase g, so we aren't talking about an equality with God. We're not talking about multiple gods, pluralistic type situation. And so, first of all, that should make you ask, what is he talking about, right? What is he talking about? Do the Mormons have it right? Are we all gonna become gods just as they were once all gods and we all have our own kingdoms and planets and everything else? I mean, this seems like a pretty concrete evidence. Jesus himself said it's in the law and are you not gods? Does anyone know what he's quoting? Some of you have the cheater sections in your Bible. It's there. Psalm? Yes, Psalm what? 82.6. Good job. Psalm 82.6. If you turn your Bible to Psalm 82.6, you'll see there, it's a psalm of Asaph. Asaph is a little-known poet who has a few psalms throughout the book of Psalms, but nothing else is known about this guy. He's not King David. He's not one of the bigger writers. He's not one of the bigger uh, mentions in the Old Testament. And so Jesus is going to use an obscure psalm. Remember, they didn't have their Bible like we do. They didn't have it all nicely set together with notes and concordances and how to go back and forth and see how things fit together. They had the old covenant. They had the old covenant on scrolls, and Jesus is going to use a hymn. Remember, psalm is poetry and hymns. And in the middle of about to be, of a, almost being stoned and killed, he's going to quote this hymn from one of the lesser known poets, and he's going to say, don't stone me because what I speak is blasphemy. Remember what Asaph said. Now, who was Asaph talking about? Hmm? I, I upped the ante a little bit here. Asaph, in his poetry, is speaking about the judges of Israel. He's speaking specifically about the judges and the justices. And in Exodus 4 and I think 7, you can see there that when God is talking to Moses and says, go to Pharaoh, I will speak on your behalf, and you will speak as if you are God. Essentially, you are speaking my words to Pharaoh. And you know, he's stuttering over himself and clamoring, and God's like, fine, I'll send Aaron with you. And then in 7, it's the same thing. He says, when you go before Pharaoh, you will be speaking as God. And so as Asaph is writing this poetry, oftentimes the judges, because they represented God, they represented his righteousness and his decrees, were called as gods because they spoke on behalf of God. They were not seen as deities like God. They were not seen as greater than humans, but they were the judges. They were the ones speaking on behalf of God. And so Jesus is going to quote this psalm and what I find most fascinating is he doesn't just quote the psalm as a hymn or say, doesn't one of your songs say? He says, doesn't your law say? Now, what's the law? The Torah, which is the first five books of the Bible, right? That's the law. 
How can he say that this is the law when it's clearly poetry? It's from song. Isn't that an interesting thought? He said, it is your law that says this. If I was one of the Pharisees, maybe you'd be like, that's not our law. That's not even in our book of law. That's our book of poetry. Well, here's the thing. Jesus, arguably, whether you're in the Christian circles or outside the Christian circles, it is without little debate, was one of the greatest communicators that ever lived. Whether he was talking to the Samaritan woman at the well, he was talking to a group of Greek philosophers, he was talking to a group of the most studied rabbis, he was talking to a group of lowly uh, teenagers who got kicked out of rabbi school, his disciples. He communicated the concept and the words of God unbelievably clearly, right? What was it, 16 out of 38 of the parables are about money? That's because so many of those parables were spoken to different groups of people. And you speak differently to different groups of people. My first job as a pastor was junior high. God bless the junior high pastors or anyone called into that. Well, I went into that, and I being a person who came off of much reformed type theology and thinking and debate, I was like, man, I'm going to bring it to these junior hires. They're going to have so many skills and tools. They're going to love it and think I'm awesome. They hated me. And for good reason. I was speaking at a level completely over their head, giving them references that made no sense to them, trying to get them to fit and see something that I saw as so clear, but I wasn't communicating well for where they were at. Now, often what that ha means, what we do, is we dumb down our message, and we think, okay, I'll dumb it down for them. We'll just talk about Noah and Jonah and Joseph and his coat of many colors, and we'll just teach real simple things. No. That's not what Jesus did. He taught incredibly complex things, but he broke it down so whether you were educated or uneducated, you could receive it. Whether you were a Samaritan or a Jew, you could understand what was going on. And that was the beauty of his communication. And so one of the things you have to understand here as we look at this section of scriptures, Jesus is communicating with very educated rabbis on their level, using their discourse and their type of debate. Did you know that? So when we read this, it's a little off for us. It's a little weird how he would pick and choose scripture and the way he talks, me and the Father are one, and I am him, in him, and he is in me. And look at my works. If my works do not validate him, then do not believe me. But if my works do, whether you believe me or not, you have to trust that what I'm doing is on behalf of God. And he's speaking in a way that they understand. Has anybody here ever tried to read a medical journal? Some new study came out in the Journal of Medicine. You're like, oh, I'd like to read that. <laughs> Three sentences in, you're like, I don't understand any of this. A little more close to home. Has anybody bought a house and tried to read your mortgage papers? <laughs> yeah. All I saw was the number that I'm going to end up paying at the end of 30 years. And essentially, I just offered them one of my children and said, would you take this in exchange? That is a ridiculous number to have to pay for this house, but oh well, I'll just be doing it for the rest of my life. The language is so hard, we need lawyers to interpret it for us, right? And the same thing with a theological book. If, if a pastor ever says, oh, this is a great book, I read it here and recommends it to you, and it's some heady theological book that hasn't broken down concepts, if that's not what you've spent your time studying, you, you don't get it. So Jesus knows he's got to get this complex concept of a Messiah, an eternal being in, a, in, a, uh, in the form of his creation, and he's got to get it across to every type of people in his time, and get this, 
throughout every other culture that will ever exist. Isn't that fascinating? How would you tell a story that would not only be valid for your listeners, but then would be valid for people of other languages, cultures, and then time travel and other periods of time? And it's still the same story, and it would still make sense to all of those people groups. Have you ever thought about the scripture in that way? That the story of Christ was told in such a way that for 2,000 years, we still get it, we still understand it, and there are still people who believe it. It's, it's absolutely mind-boggling. I am the same level and the same being and the same nature as the Father. It's an audacious claim, but it's one that he backed up time and time and time again. In fact, if I said those previous 29 verses before 30. Uh, in chapter 10, it's Jesus giving more examples. How do I get people to understand what I am and what I have come for? Well, I'll give them the example of a shepherd. They're farmers. There's lots of shepherds here. They understand the job of a shepherd. They understand the job of a pen where the sheep are kept and the gate that the sheep come in and go out. So I am that gate. I am the gate by which you enter into God's rest. I am the access point. Others will try to come in around the back. Others will try to break down the pen and take you out. But I am the true access to God. I love this because he says that and then they go, uh, we don't understand this illustration. And so it says, so he explained it to them again. And so he breaks it down again for the next 12 verses. And then it says, when he said all of these things, the people again were divided in their opinion. They thought he was crazy. Some said he had a demon. Others said this guy's clearly possessed by a demon, but he opens the eyes of the blind. And then in 22, this is the best. It was now winter and Jesus is in Jerusalem and the... Uh, it's time to celebrate Hanukkah. And he was at the temple walking through Solomon's colonnade and the Jewish leaders around it surrounded him and they asked this question, and this is fantastic. How long are you going to keep us in suspense? If you are the Messiah, would you just tell us plainly? And Jesus, this is where the first face palm happened. Jesus was like, oh gosh. And he took a Tylenol and two ibuprofen and he sat down and he said, verse 25, I have already told you, and you don't believe me. The proof is that I do it in the name of my Father, but you don't believe me because you're not my flock. You see, my sheep recognize my voice when I speak, and you don't recognize my voice because you're not mine. Not because it hasn't been presented to you, not because you aren't allowed to be, but because you don't want to be. You would rather continue to be in charge. You would rather continue to be admired. You would rather continue to work towards your own salvation. And because of that, you don't recognize my voice. So that was the first time they picked up stones to kill him, by the way. In case you're wondering, that was the, okay, nope, that's it. That's it, that's enough. And then he says here, uh, I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one can snatch them away from me for my father has given them to me and he is more powerful than anyone else so no one can ever take them to me. So they sort of set the stones down and then they ask this next question and then we get into the part that we just read. 
See, Jesus understood an authority of Scripture that the church in America has set aside. And this is the main point that I want you to walk away with today. The church has set aside an authority of Scripture. We have said these verses are relevant for 2019 and American culture. These verses are not. These verses are speaking more in generalities so we can extrapolate on them and say what Jesus might have thought. These verses are not. <laughs> Jesus, in one of the most intense encounters with the rabbis that he would ever have, presents with to them an obscure verse from an obscure poet and says, this is the law. Why is it the law? Because it is the words of my Father. Because all of Scripture is God-breathed. Because like Matthew 5 said, not a jot or a tittle shall be removed until the kingdom of God has been fulfilled. Not a dot on an I, not a strike on a T shall be touched for it is all God-breathed, and it is all useful for reproof and correction. Even this obscure verse in the book of Psalm. See, Jesus' view of Scripture was that if it's not all from God, then what's the point? If it all doesn't point back to him, then what's the point of any of it? If you can't look at the prophets and the judges and the kings, if you can't look at the first five books, if you can't look at the minor prophets, if you can't look at the leaders who set forth to, to be an example, like King David, of the one who is to come, then where do we know what is truth and what is not truth? Jesus said it's all truth. It's all foundational for your life. There is none of it that is insignificant, and there is none of it that will pass away. That is a very different precept than what the church currently holds to, specifically in America. And this is probably the thesis of his entire talk, was this one line, and it's indicated by a dash. Could we put that back up there? Are we, do we have the verse still up there? Where it says, and the scripture cannot be broken. And the scripture cannot be broken. Isn't it in your law that it said that you are gods? He called them gods to whom the word of God came, capital G, lowercase g, be clear. And scripture cannot be broken, cannot be set aside, cannot be broken, cannot be disproved. It's all the same thing, different translations. What he's saying is this. If I make you a promise that I will do something, say, help you move tomorrow, and I do not show up tomorrow to help you move. I have broken my promise. Therefore, my word holds no value, right? It's also kind of your fault because you're moving in September. But still, it's on me. I said I'd be there. I'm not there. That's a broken promise. Jesus is saying, never in any place can Scripture be disproved or broken. Nowhere is there a promise that has not been fulfilled. Nowhere is there a prophecy that did not come true. It is all there for you. It cannot be broken. That's just such an interesting claim. In the midst of being this close to being stoned, he says, all of Scripture cannot be broken. It is the promises of God. So, what he's doing here is, this is essentially what we call the plenary authority of the Bible. Go ahead. If you're taking notes, write it down, plenary. Plenary just means 
coming together. So if you've ever, who's, who's gone to conferences for work or stuff like that out of, and when you go, you have breakout sessions and you have what's called the plenary session. The plenary session is when all the members from the breakout sessions come together. And what Jesus is saying is this is his plenary authority that all of scripture, although it comes from different time periods, different people, different sections, written by different people, it is under the one authority of God. And when you bring it all together, it is cohesive and it makes sense, which is a miracle in and of itself. That this many promises, this many prophecies, this much knowledge, this much truth could all be written down, come together, not contradict itself, make sense, and be fulfilled. It's a miracle in and of itself. And you know, for the first 17 centuries, it didn't matter what church you were a part of, denomination you were a part of, culture you were a part of, the church understood in the, the church understood that the Bible was an authority. It wasn't a question. So for 1,700 plus years, if you submitted your life to Christ, remember, no one made you come to Christ, right? You made a choice of your own to come. And so if you submitted to Christ for the first 1,700 years, there was this understanding that the scriptures were ordained, that there was authority in the scriptures. It's only within the last 400 years that we have begun to question, break apart, and doubt, and pick and choose the things that we believe are right for us and not right for us. Sex before marriage, that one's, we just throw that one away right now. That is an Old Testament thing. It's an old-timey thing. I think the Baptists preached it, and let's be honest, we can do without that one. We know better. And so clearly, God had it wrong there. Plus, look at all the guys in the Bible who didn't follow that one. Yes, because their lives went so well in, in relationships. Keller says it perfectly, and I want to quote him directly, so I put this in here. He said, the reason it has changed is because we live in a society which is radically individualistic. You've heard me talk about this before. It is anti-authority, and words like submission, service, discipline, and responsibility are dirty words. Words like choice, fulfillment, freedom, personal growth, and potential, those are wonderful words. And what happened is the Christian church has chosen to accommodate the culture to bring more people in. But there are consequences and there is a price to pay, he says. You know, a lot of people look about what I talked about last week with leaders like Benny Hinn and others in the faith movement who have uh, made themselves multimillionaires, some billionaires on the backs of the poor on promising a false hope and a Jesus for hire, essentially. But one commentator pointed out, and I thought it was very good, he said, we live in a spiritually starved world. Have you ever met somebody who is truly starving? I can tell you down in Mexico, I've met children, I've met men and women who were, hadn't eaten in a week, and they're truly starving. Not like us, when we haven't eaten for a couple hours, but I mean, their body is malnourished, their, your brain doesn't function right. And a starving person is a desperate person. You meet someone who's starving and they are desperate. You hear of people seeing mirages, right? 
things that aren't actually there when they're starving, when they're thirsty, when they need something. We live in a spiritually starved world. And when a person comes clothed like they are Christ, clothed like God, and promises things, they believe things that are false. Should they have believed it? No. But when you're starving, you're desperate. That was a good reminder for me, and it's a good reminder for you to be on the lookout. What in your life have you bought into? What lies, what, what truths of Scripture, air quotes, if you're listening to this later, are you abiding by that aren't actually Scripture, but you bought into them because maybe you were starving at the time? Maybe you were in a relationship that you wanted to keep, but you also wanted to, to serve God, and so you sort of bent the truth on a few things in order to keep the relationship at both places because you were starving. What if there are things that you believe politically? What if there are things that you believe when it comes to your own mental health that you have bought into because it's easier to do that than to see what the Word of God says about it? Listen, we, we all do it. There's no shame. The point of this message is to help expose it, help us to see it, because that's what Christ was doing. He was helping these rabbis see their ignorance by presenting them with the word of God in its purest form and show them that it is the complete authority of God, no matter how they feel about him. I don't care that you don't like me. I don't care that you think I'm the worst thing since Lucifer. But look at the clues, look at the logic, look at the facts, look at the works that I've done. If it's not of God, then stone me. If it is of God, then you have to accept it, even if you don't like it. Hungry people do desperate things. But here's the thing about a person who is saturated with the word of God. You hear that word? Saturated. Say that with me saturated. I don't do this often, but saturated. Saturated with the Word of God. There are too many Christians in America and maybe in this church who are just moist with the Word of God. Go ahead. Say it with me. I'm just kidding. I won't make you say that word. Moist. <laughs> I was trying to find a way to work that into a sermon and I got it. You're just moist with the Word of God. How many more times can I say it before somebody leaves? Four? Okay. Well, thank you, sir. A person who comes to the Word of God is a radical thinker. It is often said of Christians that they need Christianity, they need religion because they need a crutch. They're too ignorant, they're too dumb to do their own thinking, and they need a book to tell them how to live and how to think. In fact, Sigmund Freud said, and this is fantastic because we all know the view, the, I don't know if you know this, but in the philosophical community, that even the secular philosophical community is looking at Freud and going, mm, he may not be the hero that we thought he was. He was not the hero we needed. He was the one we deserved. Okay. In his book, The Future of an Illusion, he says, basically, religion is a childhood neurosis, and people who are religious are childish. Ooh. Shots fired, Freud. Okay, that's good. Let me understand this then. So you say that a Christian is childish. They're immature in their thoughts. Well, let's go ahead and look at the thoughts of a child. When I look at the thoughts of a child, I have four of them. And so 
I'm by no expert like the roaches, but I, I'm a fairly know what I'm doing. Um, the heart of a child is I want my way now and the world revolves around me, right? You don't have to teach them that. They know it. They come out the womb. They poop themselves and they scream until you fix it. They're hungry. What do they do? They scream until you feed them. They get a little older. They're bored. What do they do? They cry until you entertain them. Dance for me, clown. And that's what we do. We look over at them in their crib and we're like, <laughs> and they're like, yes, more of that. And then you stop and they cry again. Why? Because it's all about them. And the fact of the matter is there are adults who still think that it's all about them. In fact, a sign of maturity is when you grow up and realize that nobody cares about you and what you think or what you want or your feelings. The world does not care. That's a sign of growth. It's a sign of maturity. It's not about me. The world does not revolve around me. It's not about what I want even. Do all of you want to spend more of your time at work than with your family? Then why do we do it? Because we've got to make money. We've got to put food on the table. We've got to put a roof over our head. We've got dreams. We've got goals. We've got to put kids through school. But none of you want to do it. It's not about what you want. So Freud said Christianity was the childish thing, yet the way I see it, secularism is the one that says it's all about me, it's how I feel, it's what I want, I do what I want, I please me first. Christianity says, no, I do what the Lord says, I love my neighbor and I put my neighbor's needs ahead of my own. Which one sounds more like a child to you? Which one sounds more like a childish neurosis to you? Christianity, which lays your life down to selfishness and picks up a cross of selflessness, or the one that stays focused on number one. Back in your court, Freud, what do you got? <laughs> so here's the thing. What is real spiritual childness, childishness? It's when we realize, I mean, what is real spiritual maturity, forgive me. It's when we realize there is a functional authoritative and a authority and a cognitive authority. A functional authority means that there are practical things that I must do in submission to this authority. That's functional. Cognitive is there are practical things that change the way I think. And that's, that's the mental. That's the, that's the God creating the new man inside of you. Right? They both go counterintuitive to the sin nature. They both go counterintuitive to what you're born with, which is that childishness that says, I am the ultimate authority. I have the right to happiness and joy. And the real irony of the Bible is it says, if you want happiness and joy, you have to relinquish your right to happiness and joy. And only then will you experience the thing that you are seeking. So... First of all, Jesus says, my word cannot be broken. Secondly, he says that my word must be obeyed. It must be obeyed. I desire obedience, not sacrifice. If you love me, then what? Follow my commandments. Follow my commandments. Friends, 
The reason I talk about saturation in the word is because when you are saturated with the scriptures, you begin to know the heart of the author. I don't just mean reading it to fulfill a 15-minute obligation to read it. I mean get to know the author. Does anybody here have a favorite author? Like a John Grisham type or somebody that you just love their work. You love the way they write and tell stories. You, maybe you, you, you read a blog on them. Maybe you've read their autobiography. Maybe you follow their Twitter account and your phone lights up every time they tweet. They twit. Well, what happens? They put out a new book and you begin to read it and you can already see hints of the author's personality, where they're going with it, how they're setting it up, because you know the author. You've read so much of their work, you know the heart of the author. Have you read the Old and New Covenant enough to know the heart of the author? Have you become saturated with it? Or are you just moist? Three more. <laughs> Jesus said, if you continue in my word, you will know the truth. And what will the truth do? Set you free. Most of us are so unhappy because we're stuck between obedience and disobedience. I'm not really disobedient, but I'm also not really obedient. I'm sort of in this middle ground, and when you're stuck in the middle ground, you're lukewarm, you're neither. You're neither hot nor cold. Jesus said, anyone who for my sake gives up family and houses and lands in this life will gain in this life family, land, and houses and eternal life in the next. It's counterintuitive to follow the Lord. He has to open your eyes to it. That's why he says, my sheep know my voice. He sat right in front of them and plainly explained it to them. I am the Messiah. I am the Son of God. I am equal to God. I am here to redeem you and buy you back and take the punishment for sin. And one guy just put his hand up and dropped his rock and said, could you explain it clearly? I don't know any more way. I don't know. It's as clear as I can make it, bud. This is who I am. Take it or leave it. But most of us never really get to the place where we're consistently and universally working on that obedience, and so we never taste the joy that Scripture is talking about. And so this is what I want to close on, okay? The church right now is so divided on so many fundamental issues. The Christian church... We do not agree on some of the most fundamental issues going on in our country right now because we have allowed secular viewpoints, secular talking heads to infiltrate and influence. We are, I will bet most of you here, don't take this as an offense, but be a little offended, are slightly more saturated with the news and what's going on in politics and what's going on in the entertainment industry than you are with Scripture. And it's not that it's hard to do that. It's actually super easy to do that because it's in front of your face 24-7. It's on your phone. It's on the TV. It's before you go to the movies. It's in the movies you watch. They've got some hidden agenda going on behind the scenes. So it's not that I, I get it. You have to make a conscious effort to come back and say, what does the Bible say about this? And whatever it says, it is the authority for my life. I've shared from the stage that uh, pornography and lust was my, that was my vice. That was the thing that kept me back from what the Lord had for me, right? 
So whenever I come to church and I'd hear a pastor preaching on it, that's the one thing where you just sort of sink down. You're like, oh boy, this is going to be tough. All right, I'll get better. We'll get over it. We'll get through this. And now there's a, a concept and understanding in the church. Well, let the boys be boys. Or does marriage really mean it's between a man or a woman? Or do we really have to look at Old Testament view on sex? Or where are we at when it comes with uh, uh, multiple people together? It's just there's, there's so many things that we look at and we just go, who are we to tell people what to do? And you know what? For too long, the church has tried to tell the secular world what to do. Is that your job? Is that my job? No. No, we are never supposed to be sitting there telling the world what to do. That's not our job. Paul made it very clear. Who are we to judge the world? That would take too much time. But he says, I will talk to and educate those who call themselves believers. I will bring them into truth. I will call out their sins. I will love them, and I will treat them with respect and dignity, but I won't let them continue to live in a lie. You see, for too long, the church has been too concerned about what the world is doing than they are about what's going on in our own house, and because of that, our own house has become a mess. And... I, and, and I revealed and told you my own past and my own embarrassing sin that, that was what had me because the next thing I'm about to say is super political and very touchy and I bring it up just like what I was saying earlier. Wherever your sin is, wherever your vice is, every single person in here is a sinner redeemed by grace and there is no shame or guilt in anything. And this is a place that if you have come and you are broken and you feel like you might be judged, just wipe that away, that is not the case. We want to see you restored just as Christ does. We want to walk alongside you to help build you up. That's the purpose of us being here. But when the church and the Christian men and women in it can look at a subject like abortion and buy the narrative that it's a woman's choice and that it's not murder, we are not saturated with Scripture. And I don't say that lightly. And I realize that there are people in here who have maybe done that. And again, there is zero judgment. There is zero judgment. I, I, I want you to be restored. I want you to be healed, whole. I want you to be healthy before the Lord. But the Bible is not unclear about that. The Bible is not unclear about where life starts. God is not unclear in the Old or New Testament about what is murder and what is not murder. But we in our own home are split because we spent so much time shaming outside of abortion clinics and telling the world what to believe and how to do it rather than looking at ourselves and saying, well, how's our own house? Is our own house in order? And we've become irrelevant on a subject. And in the church, the, the viewpoint on that subject alone is mixed let alone marriage between a man and woman, let alone social justice, the borders, what do we do with the poor in our neighborhood? Guys, the answer to everything I just mentioned is in here, and it hasn't changed. There's been no new revisions to it. 2,000 years plus, it has stayed the same. Men have tried to make revisions, and they have fallen flat. 
So either your authority is you, and you use the Bible as sort of a launching pad to be your authority, or the authority is God, and you submit wholeheartedly to him, period. Does that make sense? This is what Jesus was getting across to those rabbis who had him in a circle, had stones in their hands, is he said, all of Scripture points to me, and all of Scripture is law, and all of Scripture cannot be broken. It's either true or it's not. Make a choice. No one's forcing you to make the choice to be a Christian and sit here. But just understand, if you're going to choose to be a Christian, it's true. And that's what you're submitting yourself to. Even if it's a hard truth, even if you have to work on some things in your own life, even if you have relationships that are going to be strained because of that truth. (laughs) The authority of Scripture is greater than the authority of man. Let that be what you leave with today. Let's pray. Father, we come before you, Lord, and I just, I know this is tough. I know that There are questions right now in people's minds. I know that there are things people don't agree with. That's why I prayed for wisdom at the beginning and understanding, Lord. Would we set aside our own emotions and feelings and would we ask you, would we seek you, would we become saturated in your word in such a way that we know your heart? That's what you've asked of us, Lord. It's not about a blind obedience that obeys because we're afraid we're going to get punished. It's about an obedience because we know the heart of the author. May that be what the church represents going forward, Lord. In Jesus' name. We're going to partake of communion. We're going to come together to the Lord's table here. But before we do that, I just want to give you an opportunity. I know you see prayer partners up here every week, and it's tough to want to come up. It's sometimes intimidating. And so one of the things we did at the beginning of the summer and we've been doing today, and it's been awesome, is if you want to come forward and receive prayer, please come forward. We'd love to pray with you. We'd love to take hands with you and and ask the Lord for a word. But if you need prayer right where you're at, I encourage you just to raise your hand up wherever you're at. We've got people around you. We've got people who love the Lord and will love you who want to pray for you. So if that's you, slip your hand up now. Just slip your hand up and we'll come and we will lay hands just pray with you. Nothing weird. No speaking in tongues. No gibberish. Just English prayer asking the Lord to come alongside and help you. Is there anybody here who would like to receive prayer? Right up here. of prayer. Okay, we're going to partake of communion now, the bread and the juice, the blood and the body of Christ. And we just ask that if you're going to partake of communion with us today, you have a relationship with Christ. Otherwise, just abstain from it today. If you would like to know why, you can come up and talk with the pastor. You can talk with our prayer partners. What do we mean by that? But when you partake of communion, what you were saying is, I proclaim the death and burial and resurrection of Christ unto myself, and I proclaim it as truth, and I submit myself to it. That is what communion is doing. And the reason we do it when we gather together is because the Bible says we are one body but many parts. 
And when we come together and worship on a Sunday morning, we are those many parts coming together. And when we partake of communion together, we are saying together in agreement that he is Lord and we are not. So I'm going to pray and bless this, and then you can get up and go to the table that's closest to you. There's three in the front, three in the back, and then we'll close in worship, okay? Let's pray. Father, I bless this communion now in the name of Jesus, the bread and the juice, the body and the blood that was given for all mankind, for sin, for restoration, for love. You loved us first, Lord, while we were still your enemies. And so, Lord, when I partake of this communion, I remember that. I remember the heart of my Father, the heart of the author of the scriptures, that you are for me and that you overcome my weaknesses and make me strong when I am weak. And we bless this communion now in Jesus' name. Go ahead. There's two cups. You can take both of them and go back to your seat and partake. We'll close in worship.